EU was founded in a way in the negation of power and transcending power and replacing it with economics and law. I think now there's a uh, growing realization, not only in Paris, but elsewhere in Europe, that the EU needs to reconcile itself with power. France does not know it, but we are at war with America. It's a permanent war, an economic war, one seemingly without deaths, and yet a war to the death. This quote from former French president François Mitterrand illustrates the ancestral Gallic defiance towards the US hyperpower, one that continues to haunt French strategic thinking. So, when the US entered secret negotiations with Australia and the United Kingdom to launch the AUKUS Defence Partnership, and thus scuttling France's $90 billion submarine contract with Australia, Mitterrand's warnings turned pathetic. Even the usually diplomatic Minister for Foreign Affairs, Jean-Yves Le Drian, spoke of a stab in the back. This extraordinary diplomatic development happened amidst an ongoing conversation on the concept of European strategic autonomy, a topic we at Uncommon Decency have covered in depth last year. Can the EU become a geopolitical actor in its own right, and not just a geopolitical playing field for the great powers of the 21st century? Following the events in Afghanistan and Australia, we wanted to take stock of where this conversation is headed, and whether the transatlantic relationship has suffered as a result. Thanks to all of you for coming back on the show. Jorge and I missed you during our extended summer break, but we are back with a vengeance with a great series of episodes for the weeks to come. New season, new uncommon decency. While you can still continue to help us with the basics, such as rating the show, reviewing, subscribing, and of course sharing the pod with friends and family, we have also created a Patreon account to help us pay for our physical and digital equipment. The link to the account should be below in the description right here, and we should and we would greatly appreciate your support. And if enough of you are interested in contributing, we will set up special events for our patrons. So stay tuned. Now, Jorge, on to the show. So on the line, we are very glad to have two experts on this conversation around European strategic autonomy. Benjamin Dad, you're currently the Senior Director of the Europe, Europe Centre at the Atlantic Council. Welcome back, I want to add, you're returning on the show, as you were yeah. our very first guest. Um, I was the first guest, yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be back. Yeah. We had discussed your book, Paradise Lost, Europe and the World of Trump, which was published in 2019, in which you wrestled with this notion of European strategic autonomy. So I really recommend our listeners go to listen to that episode, as well as buy the book. Um, Sophie Peder, you're the Paris bureau chief for The Economist magazine, where you cover French politics and economics. You must be very busy these days. Um, you published Emmanuel Macron and the quest to reinvent a nation in 2018. And also for this conversation, you interviewed Emmanuel Macron for The Economist in 2019, when he famously stated that NATO was a brain-dead organization. So both of these readings should be in our listeners' mandatory reading list, as I'm sure they will greatly inform our upcoming conversation. Thank you, Sophie, and thank you, Ben. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Um, before we get started, could you give us a brief working definition of what strategic autonomy is, European strategic autonomy is, or at least maybe how it is understood in both Paris and other European capitals with its large implications for NATO and the transatlantic relationship? Benjamin, uh, we'll go first to you and Ben will come back to Sophie. Sure. Uh, well, I would say working definition is just the European Union giving itself the ability to defend its interest and security on its own if necessary. This is a theme that has really emerged in the last few years, um, especially as the United States under three administrations in a row now, Barack Obama obviously with the pivot to Asia, Donald Trump famously, and now I would argue the Biden administration as well, but we'll talk about this in more detail, have signaled shifting priorities 
uh, away from Europe, away from regions in the Middle East or in Africa that have direct uh, security impact on Europe. I think a, a good example of that uh, was the Syrian crisis with its consequences in terms of migration and uh, terror attacks in Europe. And so this is not something that is against the United States. That is not something that is against NATO or NATO as the cornerstone of uh, transatlantic collective defense. But it is about stepping up defense capabilities at the European level, uh, increasing cooperation on, on specific projects. And we've seen this in European defense the last few years, PESCO, EDF, etc. cetera. Uh, but more importantly, even it's about Europeans giving themselves the ability to think on their own, to defend their own interest on their own, if uh, if they need to in a world that's become uh, more uh, dangerous to navigate, where Europe is surrounded by an arc of crisis, by uh, aggressive powers at its uh, at its borders. So it's just autonomy. It's not um, independence, but it is the ability to act as a, as its own actor and reconcile uh, the European Union with power. The EU was founded in a way in the negation of power and transcending power and replacing it with economics and law. I think now there's a, a growing realization, not only in Paris, but elsewhere in Europe, that the EU needs to reconcile itself with power. Sophie, how is this conversation going on in Paris and across other European capitals? Well, it's it's um, it's fascinating to hear uh, Ben's description because I I agree with it, but I also think it's an extremely uh, French uh, version of of what this means. I mean, what always strikes me is that. Um, there is a, a vision of, of what strategic autonomy means in France and in Paris, where I am, uh, as Ben has laid out. But it's understood really quite differently uh, in, different, in other parts of the continent. And I think this is part of the problem. Um, if you're sitting in Berlin or Warsaw or anywhere closer to the Russian border, um, you don't really want anyone else to be responsible for your security than the United States or NATO, the NATO security umbrella. And the idea that Europe somehow is going to do this for themselves, which is the sort of purest, most, um, I guess, uh, ambitious version of strategic autonomy just seems uh, far-fetched and almost dangerous. So I think, you know, we, we have to recognize, even those of us who are very close to the conversation in France, that this is understood differently in other parts of the continent. And, and almost however many times uh, President Macron uh, explains that this is about increasing capacity, that this isn't about undermining NATO, that this is about complementing the transatlantic alliance, it is nonetheless understood in other parts of the Europe of Europe as being exactly those that sort of a project. So I think um, you know that that's I would just add that as a sort of word of caution in a way to uh, Ben's excellent definition of what strategic autonomy in Europe means. Yeah, I, I you know I, I think uh, Sophie is exactly right. Uh, I think the definition I gave in a way is the definition of the supporters of strategic autonomy uh, who also have the humility to recognize that, you know, this in no way means driving Americans away from the continent or replacing NATO, which first is not uh, something we should wish for, but also something that's definitely not realistic uh, in, in any short or medium term horizon when you look at the asymmetry and ca capabilities between the United States and Europe, especially when it comes to major threats on our border like Russia. Uh, and this is why uh, countries like Poland or the Baltic states rightly argue that NATO should be the cornerstone of collective defense on the continent on, on issues like this. Um, but I think where we see a debate that's sometimes a little surprising from some corners of Europe um, is that there is a sense, and sometimes I wonder if it's not a straw man, uh, that any European effort towards strategic autonomy, which means increasing cap capabilities and the ability to act on our own as Europeans would alienate the United States, would drive America away from protecting Europe. And, and here, uh, you know, we're really going to the core of the topic here. I, I think there are two issues, you know, the first one is in a way America is already uh, uh, shifting its priorities and interests. And if you listen to President Biden's speech 
during the Afghanistan withdrawal where he says, well, you know, now our military intervention will focus on our vital national interests. I do think that, for example, an Article 5 aggression uh, would count as a vital national interest for Joe Biden and most American presidents. Uh, and he's called Article 5 a holy obligation. So I think that's pretty clear. But when it comes to other regional crises uh, around Europe, Libya or the Western Balkans like we had in the 90s or the Eastern Mediterranean, um, I'm not so sure. And I think these sorts of crises could really stress European institutions. And this is where Europeans need to have the abilities to act. And the second point that's a little surprising when you hear uh, the criticism from the opponents of strategic autonomy is that America has been asking Europeans to step up defense spending, to increase their capabilities, to take responsibility. We've heard President Obama and President Trump in different styles, but both talk about free riding coming from uh, Europe. And it's weird because sometimes there's maybe a sense that some Europeans want to stay weak because they think it's going to force America to stay committed to the continent. And I'm, and I say this as someone who uh, is in Washington, a Frenchman, but in Washington, uh, I'm afraid this is going to have the exact opposite. And it's creating form of resentment among uh, the American, uh, American public opinion, but also American politics and will uh, uh, drive a wedge between the United States and Europe. So if you want to be good allies, you need to bring value added and, and capabilities. And this is where also strategic autonomy, I think, would actually be an asset for the transatlantic relationship. Just to add to that point, Ben, I would say that you know your your point about what strategic autonomy means is really crucial, and I think this is one of the difficulties uh, with this debate is that you know no, nobody really does does define what it means, and therefore there are people who are, are hostile to it without really ever uh, defining what they're hostile to. It, it's the, the most ambitious version as you said, is collective defence of, of the European territory. I mean, very few people really think that that's a realistic short-term prospect of any sort. But I think, you know, the near neighbourhood issues that where Europe can or could do more together with or without America's support, that's that's exactly what the sort of more um, realistic version of strategic autonomy, to my mind, means. And one example of that would be in the Sahel, where you have uh, a project there by the French um, to uh, wind down and reshape their Operation Bakan, which has been a French-led operation, and transform it into something that is going to involve a lot more European special forces around a, a special force task, special forces task force uh, called Takuba, uh, which is backed by the Americans. And this is a crucial point. You know, American provides America provides intelligence, it provides uh, logistical support to the operation, but it's you know the Europeans. Most of them French, but the increasing numbers of Europeans on the ground, boots on the ground, doing the tough, the tough fighting. And I think that's the sort of example of a, a neighborhood conflict, really tough, but one that Europeans could and can and are, in fact, doing more uh, to, with, but with American support. Yeah, I, I think that's a great example to emulate. And, uh, and you're right, Sophie. I mean, I think uh, the, the problem with the French is that they love uh, uh philosophical conversations and, and debates <laughs> uh, for which Americans, but also a lot of our European friends don't have a lot of patience, understandably. Um, and so, you know, it, it is important. I think now it's clear that this concept, this idea or slogan, whatever you want to call it, of strategic autonomy has imposed itself in the debate uh, with people who are pro and against. And now the challenge for France and for the supporters of this is to really uh, uh, turn this into very concrete operational proposals and initiatives. Uh, otherwise, we'll stay at a conceptual level. My friend Gérard Arrault, the former French ambassador to the U.S. that I think you had on the podcast too, you know, often says that the French like to say, you know, it works, it, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? And I think that's something that we, we maybe need to rid ourselves of. Right, and this is pre pre precisely trying to bring the theory down to to the practical arena, um, one question, you know, it seems from, from the outline that you've uh, both given, it seems like one of the possible interpretations of this notion of strategic autonomy is quite simply that Europe is, it should be able to define its interests 
uh, independently of of how how those interests how those interests have been defined as, as part of the the transatlantic relationship and and I wonder um, what what uh, what the effect is going to be of the recent uh, um, uh, conflict over the uh, defense uh, contract with uh, Australia with the Australians walking out of their of a defense contract for uh, procuring submarines uh, walking out of a deal they they uh, had with France. And uh, whether uh, an event like that is going to uh, drive a wedge between France and America, starting with uh, Ben and then turning to, to Sophie. Sure. Uh, well, maybe uh, if I can backtrack for 30 seconds on AUKUS uh, to really stress why it creates such a steer in Paris. It's really un- important to understand that I think this was not mostly about the commercial aspect of this. Yes, it was a lot of money, although it was less than reported in a lot of the media were only because half of the contract was actually owned by an American company, Lockheed Martin. So, you know, these are huge contract and, and there's industrial interest for sure, but it's really the breach of trust among allies. It's really the fact that the United States, Australia and the United Kingdom negotiate this new alliance and this contract in complete secrecy. And uh, sometimes it seems may, may have lied to the French when this issue was raised in bilateral consultations. Um, and it really undercuts France's strategy in the Indo-Pacific. And it's particularly stunning for French policymakers as they saw this Indo-Pacific strategy as contributing to an allied strategy in the region. You know, France has close to 2 million citizens in the region. It has strategic partnerships with countries that are the same allies as the United States, Australia, Japan, India. It participates to freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. It even patrolled the Strait of Taiwan a few months ago, which led to tensions with, with China. So here you have France maybe acting as an autonomous ally, although it is participating also to maritime exercises with, with the U.S. And, and the U.K. in the region. But that was really contributing to, I think, a transatlantic strategy in the region. So it's really unfortunate the way it was done. It's unfortunate that... The Biden administration didn't find a way to maybe bring in France in this new alliance, in this new contract as well. I think uh, some creative thinking could have, could have been done here to avoid this, this bilateral crisis. I insist on the breach of trust because this is why, yes, I do think it will have a long-term impact. Uh, you know, anecdotally, I just came back from France. Um, I spoke at events in Caen. I spoke at events in Auxerre outside of Paris. And I was asked about the submarines. This is something that really sent tremors, not only in the French defense elite, but even in French public opinion. And uh, we've seen a lot of the opposition agitate, calling for France to withdraw from the integrated military command of NATO, which uh, it famously reintegrated in 2008 under President Sarkozy after uh, close to, to four decades of uh, absence. Um, so, you know, this, this will have an impact. This will also weaken, I think, some of the most transatlanticist voices in um, in the French defense establishment, who were generally the ones who were also pushing for uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, strategy. But uh, the I think the phone call between President Biden and President Macron, uh, which started a little bit to heal the wounds and led to Philippe Etienne, the French ambassador to the U.S., to be called back, uh, to, to travel back to the U.S., um, I think it hit all the right notes. And I think it laid out an agenda uh, to work now uh, in the next few months on the Sahel that Sophie mentioned, on uh, a more capable European defense alongside NATO, on the Indo-Pacific. And, um, and now the, the real question, uh, especially with the French presidency of the European Union coming in the first semester of 2022, will be how do we deliver? How do we turn the opportunities, maybe the, the doors open from this conversation uh, uh, to um, into concrete action. And Sophie, what do you make of, of uh, this breach of trust uh, between France and America? Um, I know Ben's described this very well. And I think, uh, you know, having been in Paris, that the, uh, the, the depths of anger, it's hard to exaggerate it. Um, you know, Jean-Yves Le Drian, the foreign minister, was fuming um, on the radio and then subsequent uh, um, events. He, you know, calling it a stab in the back. This was not, as some in Washington, I think, have sought to portray a kind of staged or choreographed fit by France. This was really 
um, deeply felt uh, hurt, humiliation even, um, and, and um, as Ben said, a, a breach of trust. Now, I think, you know, um, where, where this all goes from here, um, there is a somewhat positive scenario that one could try to construct now, I think. Um, it starts uh, with that Biden-Macron phone call, which took day, days, you know, it took a, a week to, take, to set place. Macron was not uh, taking that phone call. But after it, um, the declaration, the joint declaration by both presidents was very interesting to my mind, in particular on a couple of points. One of them was the fact that the US explicitly uh, backed and said it would continue to back the operation in the Sahel and, and was grateful to the French for, for running it. But the other was really interesting, and that was a line saying that the US recognises the importance of stronger and more capable European defence and that it contributes positively to and is complementary to NATO. Now, that, that's, a, that's quite a concession from America to something that has often been caricatured as, as being exactly the opposite. Um, support for European defence, you could say it's just words. So Macron has been insisting that he now wants some actions. But in the, the optimistic scenario, I think, would be that there is now an opportunity possibly that to clear the air, to try and build, uh, rebuild some sort of confidence, and for that to involve the Americans supporting European efforts, or and particularly the French-led version of European efforts, uh, to strengthen uh, European defence capacity and, and um, along the lines that Macron has wanted to. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's easy, or it will be easy, or that there hasn't been trust lost, but I do think that there is at least an effort now by the French not to sort of sulk in the corner and nurse, nurse their wounds, but to see or look at ways in which this could be an opportunity to uh, build something in the direction that they have, have long sought to do. Ben, I want to go on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, how, what role does America expect Europeans to play? Because Biden's America is back slogan seemingly wanted to make a contrast with Donald Trump on insisting that America would treat its democratic allies with respect. And it saw it as as well as, as a strategic move in order to confront China with a more united Western front. And yet it seems in the past nine months that the US has needlessly antagonized its allies, first of all, in AUKUS, we've covered that, also in Afghanistan. There's a new Buy-American Act on US public procurement, which is creating tensions. The travel ban to the US is going to be lifted in a month, but it's been uh, after uh, months of recrimination by European allies. Is there a US strategy for Europe or are these unforced tactical errors by the Biden administration? That's a great question. Um, let me first pick up just on uh, what Sophie just said on the Biden-Macron call and the concession, rhetorical concession, at least from the United States on European defense, because I do think that's really important. And, you know, I've spoken to a, a lot of uh, friends here in, in D.C., who uh, say, and it's a legitimate point, who say, well, of course we want Europeans to spend more and unite more, and what does it have to do with us? After all, it's up to Europeans to do it. And that's only partly true. And I think American policymakers tend to underestimate the agency they have on what Europeans do on defense, because what America thinks of all this does matter a lot in certain capitals of Europe. And some Europeans have been extremely reluctant to embrace European defense initiatives because they think this is what America wants to hear. And so then they'll go to Washington and say, well, we are not enthusiastic about these European defense efforts and the French are forcing us to do it. And the Americans are saying, well, you know, these Europeans are coming to us uh, saying they don't want to do it. And you have this vicious circle that someone needs to break. And I think if you had clear messaging coming from Washington, saying, we need you to do this. This is positive for you and for the alliance. It could start to break that, that vicious circle. Um, in the 90s, you know, Madeleine Albright famously talked about the risk of duplication of redundancies between European defense and NATO. And interestingly, you know, in the 90s, it might have been true, actually. And I think now it's much less true. Now you have constant dialogue and coordination on the different strategic concepts between NATO and the European Union, the EU invest in uh, areas that are seen as complementary to what NATO does. And so I think it's really time to 
for good lift these taboos and, and, and overcome the, them. And this is where the Biden administration has a great opportunity. And this links me directly to your question, uh, Francois. Um, you know, the Biden administration came in basically putting Europe and allies and uh, American leadership supporting liberal democracy at the center of its uh, international vision. And clearly this was a way to not only turn the page on the Trump administration and tensions and recriminations we had seen, but also as the priority is clearly now the systemic rivalry with China, I think the Biden administration sees the network of allies that the United States has as its best asset. And not only just on military issues, you know, we've launched last week the Transatlantic Tech and Trade Council between the European Union and the US, which will allow to forge uh, common norms and standards on AI, a strategy on microchips, how do we think about intellectual property, about data privacy, all these issues on which the EU has actually risen as a, as a key actor and that are going to be so critical also in uh, the rivalry with China on how we think about the future of the international system and globalization. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, there's, um, uh, I think now it's time to go beyond the sort of America's back rhetoric, which was destined to reassure Europeans and have a more frank conversation as allies and friends, not as foes like we had under the Trump administration, but a conversation as allies and friends about what America does not want to do anymore, uh, where it expects Europeans to step up and take responsibility. What kind of ally alliance do we want? Do we want Europeans with us in the Indo-Pacific or do we want Europeans to actually uh, increase capabilities in their own neighborhood to ensure a stable and secure Europe, which is key for America to then project its power in the Pacific. We need to have this conversation be a little creative and realize that um, the transatlantic relationship is, uh, is changing and that's okay. We have shifting priorities and, and we need to address that. And I think there's been maybe a little bit of a sentimentalism and a little bit of nostalgia on both sides of the Atlantic for the 90s or even the relationship of the Cold War, and, and that's behind us. And so to your point, Francois, I don't think what we've seen in the last few months has been accidental. I don't think it's linked to, you know, people making mistakes. Uh, yes, there's a problem of staffing. You know, the uh, State Department, we, we just confirmed uh, Karen Donfrey as Assistant, Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. We still don't have a U.S. ambassador to NATO to Paris to Brussels to Berlin and a lot of really talented individuals have been nominated but not yet confirmed by the Senate. So, you know, all this does play a role, but I think we're in, we're facing something much more structural than this that started before Biden and that we need to address to be able to to rethink the transatlantic relationship. Sophie, um, what do you make of Ben's comments? And also, have you observed the past few weeks? moving the needle a bit on this conversation across, not just in Paris, but across Europe. Has there been some support towards the French? Has there been, on the contrary, some skepticism, some muted responses? How has the rest of Europe reacted to the past few weeks? Well, I think I would bring in another country we haven't mentioned yet into this conversation, and that's actually the UK. Um, you know, I think that viewed from France, part of what has happened with AUKUS um, and this is very different to the conclusion that London drew after the whole uh, shambolic fiasco of American withdrawal from Afghanistan, when Britain was very much on the same end as France, Germany and others. That is to say, you know, scrambling to uh, get its people out, um, you know, and, and, a, and a feeling of having been sort of left high and dry. That was one issue. But then when it came to AUKUS... The UK was firmly and squarely back where it feels more comfortable, and that is to say allied to uh, Anglophone countries. I was going to say the US, but I think it really is this sort of Anglophone alliance where the UK feels comfortable. Uh, certainly the UK under Boris Johnson feels comfortable. It's part, you know, there's the Five Eyes intelligence sharing agreement. It's there's a common language, and that is where the UK uh, is sort of feels as its natural natural home in a way in terms of security relationships 
which which is part of an answer to your question, you know, how have how has Europe responded? Well, I mean, Britain is still part of geographically part of Europe. It's still the only other significant, really uh, serious military power in Europe, the only other holder of a United States and United Nations Security Council seat. And, and therefore, it does matter in this sort of um, conversation what the UK thinks. And uh, I, to my mind, I was really struck by actually a very muted response um, to AUKUS on the part of other continental Europeans or other members of the European Union. Um, it took a few days before you began to hear uh, here and there a few comments of response uh, of solidarity uh, with France on this, but it wasn't. I there was there were in some in some quarters there was actually criticism of the idea that this was anything to do with Europe, the rest of Europe. That this was a, a bilateral Fran- French problem. So I think you know this AUKUS has has clarified uh, a lot of things about the UK and where the UK thinks it sits in the world and where it thinks it sits relative to the to the European Union. But also, I think it's uh, it's it, it, the time it took for other Europeans to make um, sympathetic or even constructive noises towards France was also um, fairly telling. Sure. And and shifting away from, from uh, AUKUS and, and into, again, back into strategic autonomy, one of the uh, areas that has been kind of a testing ground for the notion of strategic autonomy, which you've been uh, following very closely, Ben, is, is the Eastern Mediterranean. And on September 27th, uh, France inked a defense deal with Greece, uh, it committed, which uh, committed to purchase 3 billion euros worth of French warships. Uh, you know, the deal also includes mutual defense assistance. There's obviously the, the ongoing uh, spat of tensions between Greece and Turkey and France has, has been playing a role there. And um, what, what does this new partnership lie uh, and how, how does it relate to the conversation on, on strategic autonomy, starting with Ben and then and turning to Sophie? Well, first, I think something that Sophie knows better than than I do because she's the one who conducted this historic interview, is that it's important to remember that the brain dead comment that uh, Macron famously made at the time was mostly about Turkey. It was, you know, that uh, was just after uh, the, the, the US was drawn from Northeast Syria and the Turkish incursion, which has created a crisis between France and, and Turkey in the, in the region. Um, and Turkey is obviously a NATO member uh, the relationship with Turkey within NATO now is is awkward, um, and it's I think a question mark for both Europeans and Americans. Uh, and so this is why I think this this agreement uh, between France and Greece is really interesting. It's a really interesting and I would say potentially historic agreement where you see two EU members, two NATO members, uh, deciding to move even forward in their bilateral defense relationship uh, and France uh, committing to uh, defend Greece uh, and defend Greece's territorial integrity. Uh, I think we remember that uh, Greece is threatened by Turkey and its uh, uh, maritime sovereignty. Uh, And we had some tensions last summer in the Eastern Mediterranean where France actually sent a ship to support Greece, but also Cyprus in, uh, in their sovereignty, and I would say just in defense of international law, which is unfortunately, I think, an issue on which we've seen other European actors be a little muted. Um, and so this is why, um, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a creative way to go forward. Um, one thing that strikes me with AUKUS, um, I think, as Sophie said, the Brits really do see this as rekindling with the Anglo-speaking world and with Five Eyes. Um, I'm not sure that's a perspective from the United States. I don't think they really think that much about the Anglo-Saxon world or the English-speaking world and uh, in, in Five Eyes. I think uh, what AUKUS reveals is, um, I think, a more flexible way of conducting foreign policy. Uh, you know, Moses Naim had called this mi- mini-lateralism uh, 10 years ago in a, in a really interesting book called The End of Power. And I think this is what it is. It's to say, you know, okay, we have NATO, we have the European Union, we have multilateral organizations, but also we're going to shape a la carte coalitions and alliances according to the challenge that we're facing. And this is a trend we've seen in recent years. I mean, from the creation of the G20 to uh, TTIP and the TPP because the WTO doesn't work anymore. There's sort of uh, uh, creative multilateralism uh, in, in new forms of, of alliances. And so I think... 
you know, when you think about strategic autonomy, you might say, well, we, we need to move forward at 27 with uh, uh, decision-making process initiatives that are at, at the 27 level, and that's burdensome and, and slow. Or you can say, let's be flexible and, and creative about agile, about how we think about this. And so you'll have a Franco-Greek alliance in the East Med here, and then you have other sorts of partnerships there. It's unfortunate to see the, the tension between France and the United Kingdom right now, because I actually think in August, um, during the Afghanistan withdrawal, you saw, I think, a, a resumption of communication initiatives between Paris and London uh, that was quite interesting. It could have led to interesting initiatives. So I, I think the key word here is really to be to be agile and, and create these, uh, these correlations according to challenges. Yes, I think that's right, Ben. I, I mean, you, you, your your analysis of the Eastern Med uh, situation and the Franco-Greek uh, deal is exactly right. And it does go back to that um, conversation that I had with Emmanuel Macron. It was in, in October 2019. And he was concerned not just about Turkish behavior, unilateral Turkish behavior, uh, um, as, as a, as a mem- fellow member of NATO, but also with about the United States, which had also withdrawn um, at, at very short notice um, from northeastern Syria. So there was a sense in which uh, there were two NATO allies that were acting without any sort of um, uh, coordination or even communication um, with each other, let alone with other NATO members. So I think that that is absolutely the sort of backdrop um, to understanding the importance of the Franco-Greek deal. It's not the first time, of, of, of course, that two European Union members have um, promised uh, or enshrined a mutual defence clause because the French and the Germans did that, of course, at, 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 uh, at the Aachen Treaty. But it's the significance of, of it, I think, is exactly as, as Ben laid out. Now, on the UK, you know, ideally, of course, there would be some kind of a strategic dialogue between the UK and France. And operationally, the two armies work incredibly well together. I saw that in Mali um, Last year, you know, the British are out there. Um, you you can see it, and if you talk to the the, the two armed forces on each side, they want to, they do, they they work well together. But politically, there is just such a level of distrust at the moment between London and Paris that I see it. It, it seems very difficult to me to see how you can have any sort of meaningful strategic conversation about how to work together at a political level um, with France and the UK. And and that's that's a real, real loss, because, you know, if you do pursue this idea of something more flexible, the UK ought to and should be involved. And so it's it's a real problem, I think. Yeah, to to see where this conversation is is going, I want to focus on uh, one of France's main neighbours, of course, Germany, which as on as on all European matters, is a key player. The country is currently and will be paralyzed for the next few weeks, probably months, in protracted coalition negotiations, which is co- coincidentally when France will be having the presidency of the Council of the EU. But what do the candidates of the main German parties say about this question of strategic autonomy? And has the election moved the needle on this conversation at all? Um, ben and then Sophie. Yeah, I um, I think that this election will move the needle in the right direction, uh, but it will be still very slow. Uh, Olaf Scholz, who's the likely new chancellor, is a committed European. Uh, we've seen the Green Party uh, increase its score, maybe below what uh, it was polling a few months ago, but still, it is actually still a historic uh, showing for the Green Party, which is... Uh, uh, had, I think, a pretty strong foreign policy message on Russia, on China, uh, on bolstering European uh, initiatives. Um, but, but there are two issues, I think, here. The first one is that uh, if you do want to increase capabilities, that doesn't mean um, making budgetary choices uh, at a time where we've already spent a lot on COVID recovery, of course. Uh, and it's likely that the FTP, the Liberals, uh, who are fiscal hawks, will play an important role in a new coalition, maybe even hold a, the finance ministry. So that's something to um, to keep in mind. And the second aspect is more structural, I would say, beyond just the coalition making, is that um, I think Germany does not feel a direct sense of threat 
today in today's world. I think the status quo actually, there's a sense at least among the German political establishment that the status quo is playing in Germany's favor. And so there's not really a sense of urgency to invest in this Uh, capabilities. I think you've had some strong voices. You know, Akaka, the defense minister, has been an interesting voice. She's a critic of strategic autonomy, but she's more broadly been really in favor of European stepping up capabilities. But there's not the the urgency coming from Berlin. And that's something I think that's uh, troubling for other uh, other Europeans. I will say one one last thing, though, that's interesting is that um, one thing that's been a little specific to Angela Merkel has been Uh, the strong relationship with China. Of course, Germany has a very deep trade relationship with China, but I think that um, the tone from all the political parties, but also actually from the business world in Germany, is starting to shift on China with a more lucid approach to this. So you might see a uh, a more critical take coming out of uh, Berlin in the next few years. Sophie, we are going to interview actually your colleague in Berlin, um, Tom, on the German coalition negotiations. Um, But you can respond to that question, but also I think it would be interesting to see how does Macron approach these negotiations? How does he think he can put this topic on the forefront, maybe influence where he can influence these conversations? Um, Sophie. Well, I mean, I, just to, to follow up on what Ben said, I, I think that uh, this is absolutely right. There's, you know, some pot- potential for movement, but it's going to be very slow. Uh, Germany still doesn't spend 2% of its GDP on defence, as NATO members are supposed to. And, you know, Germany just has a very, very different defence culture. You know, it's uh, if it, when, when you're in Paris, it's just quite striking how f- much consensus there is about French uh, military operations overseas. France loses uh, men and sometimes women in the Sahel. And this is accepted because France has a culture which uh, believes that overseas operations like that are in France's interest. Now, you know, expeditionary military culture doesn't belong in Germany. And for obvious reasons, it's, it's, it's therefore a very different sort of partner for the French. That's not to say that Germany hasn't moved outside that comfort zone in some ways, including in the Sahel, but, you know, putting boots in the ground in harm's way, putting boots on the ground in harm's way is something that, that the country will, will, will do um, with, with great difficulty, I think. Uh, how does Macron then uh, push his ideas forward, particularly under the, the, the French presidency of the European Council, which starts in January? I mean, you know, Macron is, is great at sort of pushing out the big idea, uh, provoking a response, uh, grabbing attention. He's not quite so good at building the sort of alliances you need in order to make those proposals uh, a reality. And it does involve not just working with Germany, it involves working with all sorts of other European partners. I mean, Italy is a very good example, you know, uh, Italy under Draghi, exactly the sort of partner France should be working very well with. Um, There are, there are, you know, numerous other examples that the Estonians, for example, are working, have provided special forces to the Takuba in the, in, in the Sahel for the, for the, to the French, work very well with them there. Those are the sorts of partners of all different sorts, small, big, medium, that Macron needs to work with. And that's, you know, perhaps the sort of weaker side of the way he approaches the um, the strategic autonomy debate. Ben, do you want to bounce back on that? No, I, no, look, I, I agree with this. I think, you know, it's interesting yeah, because yeah. if I remember correctly, I think the, I may be wrong on this, but I think the Sorbonne speech was actually pronounced during the last uh, negotiation uh, uh, in, in in German coalition building and, you know, may have been also intended to sort of influence German politics toward a more uh, ambitious and pro-European approach at the time. And there's been famously a lot of frustration in Paris that uh, Merkel was never seen as really responding to uh, the Sorbonne vision and uh, proposing her own vision or her own alternative. And clearly, we've seen very different styles between Merkel and Macron. They've worked well together, especially in the last year with the historic EU recovery fund. That's, that's to be noted. Um, but clearly, you know, Macron brings sort of the long-term vision and has not always been very good at building coalitions within Europe to defend this agenda, where Merkel has been a more uh, short-term tactical politician that's pretty good at building coalitions, uh, but sometimes coalitions is status quo rather than reform, a very slow 
and cautious incremental reform. And that also says something not only about the two personalities, but I think they're two products of very different political systems. The a very centralized Gaulist system of the Fifth Republic, where there's one boss, it's the president, um, and the uh, coalition building of the German system, where, you know, first you have a coalition government, then you have a stronger Bundestag, then you have a more decentralized system with lenders. And so uh, you you have to be uh, attuned to building these coalitions all the time, which I think prepares you well for uh, the way the European Union uh, functions. I think now, you know, what's going to be really interesting in the next few months is we're talking about the German election. We have a French election coming next spring, which will happen during the French presidency of the European Union. Uh, and so it's uh, it's an opportunity, I think, for France to really try to um, make some, some important gains, both on European defense. I think that will be one of the centerpieces of uh, Macron's agenda, uh, but also on other issues such as uh, digital and how to deal with uh, big tech uh, companies. So that'll be, I think, an interesting to uh, to follow. And of course, then a, uh, a really critical uh, French presidential election where it does seem once again like the alternative uh, to Macron will be uh, a, a populist far right, but maybe not Marine Le Pen this time, but maybe Eric Zemmour, who in certain aspects, is an even more radical, I think, uh, candidate when it comes to a lot of the issues we've talked about today. Um, we are fact-checking team has checked your claim, Benjamin. And indeed, the last Sorbonne speech was doing the um, uh, coalition negotiations was actually a, a week after the last German uh, election. So there is a, probably some timing here that happened back then. Um, thanks a lot, Sophie. Thanks a lot, Ben, for this fascinating conversation where we took stock of this conversation on European strategic autonomy uh, a year after our very first episode on this very topic. Um, thank you so much for both of you and uh, see you all next week. So, Sophie and Ben are out, but before we do this usual outro and bounce off ideas with um, just both of us, um, I wanted to talk a little bit to you, our listeners. Um, we've been away a lot um, for the past few months. We've been working on this new season. We've been taking a break. Um, so we've come back with a few new ideas. First and foremost, if you want to show your support to the show, you can do the normals, you know, usual um, sharing, the liking, the reviewing, um, the, all these things are tremendously useful to us. But now, if you want to show that extra bit of love, you can also support us on Patreon. Um, we are experimenting with it right now, um, but we are hoping that if enough of you are around, we will be able to have some paid tiers We'll be able to have a kind of lot of creative interactions with you. Right now, it's just for you to show your support. But if it takes on with you guys, maybe you can make uh, something bigger out of it. Absolutely. As you said, sharing is caring. And uh, here, here's an easy way for all of our listeners to uh, uh, chip in and, and uh, show their uh, support uh, of the show by contributing uh, however much or little uh, they wish so um, our patient page is, is linked on our Twitter uh, profile page. So if you head over to Twitter, the pin tweet uh, that will show up first uh, is... It should also be in our description down below. The description of the episode should be able to yes. find the link and click below. Yes. And uh, shifting gears to, uh, to kind of uh, uh, digesting this whole conversation on strategic autonomy, I, I was particularly happy to do this. Uh, as it, it, it to, to mark a year since we first launched the show. And the first episode that we went online with was an episode on strategic autonomy with Ben. It was a single guest episode. Uh, we kind of talked mostly about his book, but it was a really good grounding. Uh, I think it gave folks a really good grounding on what it is that Macron means when he talks uh, about strategic autonomy. And so I, I think it, it, it was a, it's a great opportunity for, for all of our listeners to revisit this concept a year on uh, with uh, Ben and another guest, and to sort of you know um, test the waters and see where where this concept is headed uh, as we reel from the uh, AUKUS uh, 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 conflict. And um, w the thing that that I really take away from this episode is that so whenever whenever uh, we discuss strategic autonomy, we ought to bear in mind that Europe is not the subject of people's loyalties in the same way that France is the subject of people's loyalties. Europe is not a state. Europe is a multilateral organization. So 
And obviously, Ben was, you know, primarily dealing with the defense and security aspects and components of strategic autonomy. And when, when you talk about defense, I mean, first of all, there, there's no um, there's no question that the, that Europe will never be able to raise an army in the same way that France raises an army. But um, even the little things that states can do to reinforce European security, I think, are always going to be limited and uh, hampered by the the fact that Europe is uh, people that people are not as excited about. Uh, a common European defense as they will be about uh, protecting the borders of their nation state. Um, what, what did you think of this whole episode? Um, first of all, on this AUKUS ruckus, um, I think I think a few words. I think Ben is right. Um, some Americans and some Brits are saying, you know, this is the French milking in, being angry because they lost a contract. Um, the breach of trust is staggering. Um, I don't think I've we've seen this kind of sabotage of French interests um, by an ally in a very long time. So the reaction might have seemed excessive, but I, I believe me, in France, people were generally outraged that we could be backstabbed this way. And also, it kind of confirms this latent suspicion on the far right and on the far left, especially, of um of the US and we started this episode with a quotation from Mitterrand saying there is a permanent war an economic war with the United States um this thing is kind of haunting french strategic thinking so in many ways um, macron might not be reelected in 6 months time but what this did is give a lot of fodder to a very anti-american um to very anti-american figures and we were talking a little bit about zemmour at the very end of the episode and um, Zemmour is very anti-American in, in, in his politics. He's anti-NATO. Um, he's very suspicious of America. Um, and so this is kind of only giving fuel to those kind of candidates. So I think it's, um, I'm not sure whether it's a mistake from the Biden administration or whether it's a deliberate snub. Um, but either way, it's, it's going to have serious consequences. Um, now, on what this means kind of more generally, not just for the EU, it seems to me that we are seeing a kind of new world develop. Uh, I was reading a lot what um, Aris Racinos was writing in Unheard over the past few uh, months, and he's been developing all this concept. But we could be living in an era in an era where the grand multilateral alliances that structured our world, you know, we we inherited those alliances from the Cold War, are less relevant. Um, there's not only this AUKUS ruckus with um, with France and Australia, but the Franco-Greek Defense Pact is implicitly aimed or maybe explicitly aimed at Turkey, which is another NATO ally. Um, we are seeing all these kind of sub-NATO agreements that are proving Macron's analysis about NATO being brain-dead to be very true. And maybe we are seeing um, a new world in which the notion of alliances could be under threat with the emergence of seemingly more opportunistic diplomatic strategies. Look at Russia, for example. Russia is all over, all over the place in, diplomatically. Um, with Turkey, depending on the issue, it's quite close or quite uh, or, or frontally opposed. Um, China is also have this kind of very opportunistic diplomatic strategy. Um, maybe it's going to be much harder to think in terms of block in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, we we will um, wind up the episode. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in for another week, and uh, stay tuned as we release uh, the new season. Don't forget, like, review, subscribe, share the episode. And now you can even um, support us on Patreon. So thank you to all of you to staying in, to, to staying till the end of the episode. And uh, we are looking forward to seeing you next week. Thanks,